Welcome to the third season of Between the Lines, the podcast that brings you interviews with some lesser-known Canadian authors and writers. In this season, we will be exploring some of the works of these unknown but talented poets from various locations across this great country. From the breathtaking landscapes of the far north to the bustling downtown city streets, these writers have captured the essence of Canada in their words. In each episode, we will delve into the lives and careers of these fascinating individuals, learning about their inspirations, challenges, and their triumphs. So join us as we discover the hidden gems of Canadian literature and uncover the stories between the lines. Hello and welcome to Between the Lines. On today's show, I will be speaking with Felicia Pierce, author of When Words Flow, a cluster of poems and notes from a woman and seeker of life. Hello, Felicia, and welcome to Between the Lines. Thank you so much for having me. I feel pleasure to come here and arrive to your circle of listeners and yourself. Well, you know, I do get a kick out of what I do and, and who I do it for. So I guess before we get into the nitty gritty of the the whole interview affair, I wonder if you'd mind giving us listeners, I'm a listener, a brief rundown of who Felicia is and what she's about. I'd love to. That's such a complex question to ask an individual uh, who has a consciousness. <laughs> um, I would say that I have a wandering heart that truly ignites an interest in many forms of art. Um, so I have a history of being a dancer, singer, songwriter, what else? My goodness, visual arts. And I have a family history of ranges of arts that I was influenced by. So art is a big indicator of my life. I'm also an enjoyer of nature. So I do many playful acts such as hiking and biking. And I do live in the surfing hub of Canada. So I take my tries in surfing as well. I'm a yoga teacher and meditation mentor. And I usually help people overcome their psychological, physiological hurdles and be able to self-realize themselves. And these are only a few, but I feel that they're the most important to to tell you about. That's fair enough. Well, thanks for sharing that. Normally, at this juncture, of, I would go right into what I call question period. But the emphasis of this season is Canadian poets and their poetry. And mm. so with that being said, I think now would be a good opportunity for you to present a poem if you have one ready for us. Absolutely. Would you like an intro or outro of the poem? Yes. Okay. <laughs> and you know what? We're not limited by time. All right. So as a way to describe this piece, um, we often feel desensitized by just the simple pleasures of life. And there was a moment where I was in a, I was teaching at a resort and we're just surrounded by the beautiful Nahatlaj River. And it was so serene because it was just me and a few friends that had this beautiful 
huge landscape to herself. There wasn't tourists in the way. It's a really not a well-known area to begin with the tourism. So it gave us the pleasures to have this whole beautiful scenery to ourselves. And I just thought, wow, this is just so simple, but yet there's so much content within my heart and the sense of wonderment. So I kind of made, because it was such a simple encounter, I made this piece quite a simple piece as well to reinforce that feeling. So I'll share it now. There, right there, is a creation that is deeply touching. A creation so surreal that your mind doesn't want to acknowledge it. And here it is, all to ourselves. We're only us amongst its waters. We're only the sound of our voice, the ducks and our paddles tapping the water, echoing through one valley to another. No other human but us. Only ripples of our movement touching the motion of the still waters, viewing the depths and layers of endless mountains. There, right there, is a creation that was made for us in that moment. Very nice. As you were reading, I was listening, which is what I should have been doing. So good to know I'm still following. Um, <laughs> and imagery. You were able to plant imagery in my mind with your words, which I find very important. And so I was able to follow along and argue at the same time because uh, and arguing because I think there was something in there about the echo of a duck. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. A duck's quack doesn't echo. Did you know that? Interesting. Yeah. <laughs> but it definitely, because it was such a beautiful area where any and all things were being rippled sound-wise through the valleys. Mm. It was such a quaint area. There was no other noise. And I could hear only the ducks and the paddles and just the little voices when any time that we would communicate with each other from afar on the lake. And, um, yeah, just describing that feeling, that sensation of what it felt like to be there. Yep. I've, I've been to many such places physically and in my mind. <laughs> <laughs> it's true. What can I say? Um, thanks for sharing that. Now let's move into question period. Okay. We'll start with right at the beginning, number one. When you write, do you stick to a certain topic or theme, uh, love, nature, death, or do you just write what comes out? I would say the latter. I see myself often as a conduit to the motion that's kind of roaming through me and then I just express that outside of me. So it always determines a result that's really diverse from the previous or the future pieces that I make. So whatever tone I find myself anchoring in, even emotionally, it can really alter the type of theme of writing that I do. So I have pieces of nature. I have metaphoric emphasis to really bring about a message forward. I have sensations of love and also heartbreak and moodiness and then wonderment often. However, what I can say would be the continuous theme between each of these pieces that reoccurs time here and there is that 
each piece converts into an inspirational ending. So it would start with something and then there's an inspirational ending page, uh, ending piece to conclude the insight of that moment or that experience. So almost kind of portraying the resiliency that the human experience has, I would say. So the moment of writing is not necessarily inspired by the moment you're in. Not often, like there could be a sense of emotion that I feel in that moment. And then suddenly there would be a channel that goes through me and it expresses uh, the details and description in a way where it kind of brings me to another type of experience. And then I kind of just portray those two experiences into one. So there's some, a lot of pieces that are a little bit, you know, indicating meta metaphors. Um, and I'll say that'll be the reason why. And yeah, it's interesting. And sometimes I have a secondary inspiration. So if I'm surrounded by something like music that can further portray an emotion that seeds out and blossoms into a whole new message. Mm -hmm. So I would say, yeah, it just feels as if there's a ongoing channel going through me sometimes. And I don't even have to think about what I need to write. It just kind of comes out as it does. And then, yeah, it just evolves into an array of different things such as heartbreak or wonderment and cheeriness and reflection you say it so it just comes out of you out of nowhere um but when you run out of that inspiration to write that doesn't necessarily mean that whatever you're writing is over it's just that that particular inspiration is done do you come Mm -hmm. back to it later or do you let it sit or what do you do how do you manage that not often i feel when there's a piece that comes to an ending that may seem shortened i feel that that's kind of life telling me that i don't need to elaborate any longer it's it's there the message is direct we don't have to go further into it there are a few pieces where i've gone back because i want to have a a different perspective upon it perhaps time later Mm-hmm. But often if a piece ends and it may seem like it's a short piece of art, I'm okay with that. I kind of accept it and just see that it's meant to be that way. So I, I write similarly. Um, it just, I, I get hit by the urge to write. I write, I write, I write till there's nothing done and I go back through it. And if it doesn't seem complete though, uh, I don't try to force anything into it because it will sound contrived as as opposed to the flow that you had. Does that oh. make sense? Oh, yeah, absolutely. I not want to really be a forcing nature to begin with when it comes to my artistic endeavors. I I just have a feeling that we are, that's the whole forcing attribute that we put amongst ourselves as humans. It's just kind of reinforcing the struggle that and criticism, and criticism that we have towards ourselves. So I also feel, though, that forcing can actually create more of a hurdle than anything else. And the whole point of poetry is to get anchor into your feelings and your emotions um, and every sense of your being. And if we have the restricting thought process kind of forcing our way through, it creates this log that just falls upon your, your stream to be able to have this creative flow. So I'm, I'm completely supportive of your, your process because I see in the same way for myself as well. I don't know if it's really a process though. It's just a a thing, right? It just happens. It does. Processes usually involve process steps. 
And, and with writing this way, it's just, it just happens. There's, there's no thinking about it. It's, you know, it's like a, a wind just coming and going. Yeah. I would say that the, the process aspect of that would be just the steps of surrendering. Mm, okay. That's fair enough. Yeah. Number two, <laughs> uh, who introduced you to poetry and with what? Mm. I wouldn't say it was a particular person or event or thing. It was kind of a magnitude of things that slowly accumulate into my connection with writing. So I have a few memories to mind I can share right now that I think were primal um, steps to get there. The microphone Uh, is yours. Perfect. Thank you. So for me, since a young child, since I started writing, I would always have pages filled with doodle drawings and just random bits of words. And through that motion, it slowly continued into writing short stories, uh, fictional stories to be exact, and then lyric writing, so songwriting. And the motion of that type of writing with my connection with the paper is what brought me to where I am now with my relationship with my writing, I would say. However, there are a few things that definitely helped me propel a bit more as any millennial as I am from that generation I would say Rumi would be someone that always was in my surroundings and I really liked his pieces because they felt very aligning to me at any point in time of my life and I would say that he's very gravitational deeply insightful and philosophical and I'm really into philosophical things but in in such an extreme clearness that really speaks loudly into the mind, which I feel sometimes could be hard to do as a writer, Mm -hmm. um, depending on the type of writer that you are. And I guess in a lot of ways, I look up to him as a legacy. And another thing that I took pleasure in since a young child was classical civilizations. And with my English studies and classical civilization studies, we learned a lot about literary works in Greek mythology, sorry, in Greek, uh, Greece <laughs> and other beautiful ancient civilizations. And so a lot of those literary, um, figures really prompted my likeness as well, uh, to the philosophical writings and Although I wouldn't say that this is particularly a poetry form, ancient mythologies and the amount of symbolism that they carry and metaphors that they carry into their stories was really reinforcing an interest in using such things in my own everyday creation as well. So I think that all these together is what really prompted my likeness to connect with poetry. That's fair enough. So basically no living person introduced you to poetry, no. uh, reading reading poetry. No, and it's so odd because often that's what happens to most poets. Usually someone who is in a very specific category that they start to write in were influenced by a person sometime or another earlier in their age, in their years, who was in that very category of writing 
And it seems that I accumulated interest from other things that brought me somehow to the branching of poetry. Um, and it's very interesting for me because any time I've listened or to podcasts of other people or read articles of other people being interviewed, it seems that they're highly influenced by a very particular person in that very specific form of writing, but that didn't necessarily happen to me. Hmm. Hmm. You're one of the lucky ones. Oh, I'm kidding. <laughs> <laughs> so what about, uh, so you're, there was no introduction to writing. You, that was just something you started doing as well. Yeah. Even before I knew what I was doing, I was always writing random bits and pieces um, as I was learning to write, uh, not knowing that it would later on form into this uh, infatuation of writing. And also to an early age, I would write very heavy, complex storylines for short stories I would write that was not at all affiliated with homeschool work. It was just kind of, I had this really deep imagination, uh, very specific um, psychological encounters of characters that weren't real in this life. And somehow I developed them in my mind and I would write about them. So at first, obviously it was fictional writing. And, um, you know, this was before I knew that writing was a form of, of a position, a role in life, because at that time I didn't know I was very young. I was literally in kindergarten or or I think grade two is when we start to write. So it was around that time period. And yeah, I would write very complex, heavy things. And it's really interesting because although I had that attribute uh, kind of naturally occur for me, I also was struggling with something by society. And that was a learning disability when I was much younger. So here I would write an amount of these beautiful stories that were very complex for such a young mind. And yet I was hurdled by the institution with a learning disability. I had this contrast and it was really interesting as I look back of how I developed, where did it even come from, you know? And however, m there are sides to my mom's side that are writers and uh, visual artists and musicians. So I kind of see how that naturally occurred for me. But it's just such an interesting contrast that I had at an early age. Um, and yeah, it just came naturally to me, the writing process. I have a lot of teacher friends, so teachers don't beat me up, email me or anything, okay? But I think a lot of, uh, a lot of the educators I find that label children are doing it because they don't want to face the reality that they might not be able to teach this kid the way he needs to be taught and just throws right. a label on it. Right. That's been a, a, a thought theory. Absolutely. And uh, especially in the 90s, it was, it was more, um, it was more, um, it was more pronounced, I feel, because there wasn't a whole lot of students that were in a learning disability category. So, there was very few, a handful of students through the whole school that would be placed into a separate room away from their, their grade school classrooms. And it made a very noticeable and also a huge target for bullying. So that's why I came and arrived from, is from that foundation of um, what I went through. That was quite a hurdle. However, 
I think in this generation, the newer generations now that are in school, learning disabilities have actually increased. There's an inflation. And so now it's kind of, I feel, incorporated to a bigger capacity than what was available at my time um, in the early 90s. And many times I encounter parents and their children, and every single time these children are encountered by some sort of learning disability, whether it's autism or, you know, just an array of things. Well, we won't get into the theory behind that. No. No, for sure not. Um, but it seems as if there is a huge increase, a wave of students with learning disabilities. So I think the capacity of uh, being able to approach that is a lot more than what was available at my time, uh, whereas it was more visible for a student like me to be a target of bull- being bullied because I was the outsider. So, yeah, it's an interesting concept. Um, however, as any child... We all have a great ability inside of us. It doesn't mean that we're not smart. <laughs> it doesn't mean that we're stupid. It just means that we have a certain ability that the society isn't able to really approach it. In exactly. such if I were to uh, apply the way that I was back in school to today's standards, I probably would have fallen under one of these new labels. But um, I don't believe... Uh, you know, I, we can try and fact check this if we want, but I don't believe that I had a learning disability. I had a living disability. Mm-hmm. And by that, I mean, um, a dysfunctional family, uh, you know, um, step parents, you know, that, that whole dynamic messes a kid up too. And it's not necessarily a learning disability. It's just a living disability. And again, tied in with, uh, teachers not knowing how to, teach to that kind of individual and they they just bump it off to the system which is an easy escape for them as well i love you teachers yes we love you we do we there is an importance to education in our life but yeah it's interesting i liked how you said a living the living stance because that's what most often happens is that it's it's coming from an awful living situation or a difficult living situation that really deters the development of that child. And not just intellectually, but I think also in a social aspect as well. A hundred percent. Absolutely. And I definitely was, definitely was a part of that, but it's so interesting because the learning disability that I was labeled to have at the time no longer exists. It was called articulate language disorder. And it just um, disappeared. It just disappeared. At some point, they kind of eliminated that label in the learning disability category. But it was very prominent at the time. And so I would have speech therapists and, and other type of uh, therapies uh, done as a child. And yeah, no longer. I, it's interesting because I remember I was reading an article about it because I was intrigued to know when it, they removed it from the from the system. And... <laughs> And I think it was sometime after my childhood that they eliminated it um, in the early 2000s or late 2000s, I believe. For those who are in that knows more about this, please, please correct us. But yeah, so it's really interesting how the institution, first of all, the teacher's not paid enough or not given enough requirements to even approach a child in a and I mean a spectrum of children with many different learning disabilities or impairments. Hmm. So I feel 
that in a way it's kind of hard for us to just give fault to the teachers when they're not getting paid enough and they don't have the requirements or the credentials to deal with the psychological upbringings of a child that affects their their way of learning. I think that the whole point of just a teacher is just to teach the general information of all these subjects that we learn. <laughs> so I think that's also a problem within our society is um, not giving enough credentials or engagement in knowing, you know, the possibilities of different types of children and their way of learning. I think you just came up with about 40 or 50 different topics to write poetry about. <laughs> uh, if you were inspired by that, email me and let me know. <laughs> uh, when you first started writing poetry, were you a show it to everybody kind of writer or were you the keep it to yourself? I love this question because as we were just talking about learning disabilities, <laughs> I kept it to myself because I was afraid to show how my thoughts were like. Growing up with what I did at the time, it made me feel as if I wasn't suitable to share my thoughts. I wasn't suitable to share my voice because it wasn't strong enough to do so. So for me, my writing was, for the most part, hidden. However, there would be very few friends I would actually share it to that were very encouraging and saw the grand abilities within me to share it to them. But there were very few. So either between my short stories, my songwriting, and also some poetry pieces as well at the time. But it wasn't until 2016 when I was, I would say, completely transformed from yoga as I'm a yoga teacher. I went through a very heavy, deep, integration process of doing a year of study under a Hindu Vedic priest, getting deep into scriptural yoga, as well as the physical aspect, and implementing it very heavily into my everyday routine. And it really changed and altered me in a way that felt more courageous and uh, more articulate, which gave me the confidence to start sharing my pieces. Mm. Time I was not fairly new to Instagram. I think by then I was a couple of years into having Instagram. And I would start to post a really beautiful photo. And along that photo was a caption that was a piece of mine, a poetry piece or a prose piece. And I would have it alongside that photo. And interesting enough, people in an unforeseen matter were heavily complimenting on that written piece rather than the photo itself which I thought okay maybe this is important <laughs> the writing aspect and I started to share it more and more and people complimented and complimented more and more which progressed into my choices later on in choosing to publish later on the path which I did if it wasn't for just simply having the courage to just start sharing and receiving that reward of people appreciating those little prose pieces or poetry pieces, I wouldn't be where I am now being a published author. Can you read another poem for us? Sure. So this one is kind of 
um, implementing a metaphor to a meaning that I felt I want to reveal. And it was about having to accept the darkness. And there's a reason to darkness is actually a nourishing, a nourishing process to how we grow. And so it's just a little, it's a little piece. It's quite small, but I feel that um, it's profound because as you were sharing about the piece that, you know, you kept to yourself and then it was shown, but someone found it and they read it. This, this very piece actually was read by someone unexpectedly as well. I um, mm. had posted it on the social media and days after I went to a woman's circle and in this woman's circles, there was mutual friends and then also acquaintances at the time and all of whom I had uh, on my Facebook. So I guess they were able to see this on either platform, Facebook or Instagram. And we, we, we began the circle by introducing ourselves and why we're here. And sometimes we bring something to the center as uh, a centerpiece of our ritual. And this woman suddenly said, I hope whoever in the circle is okay that I read this because it's her piece. And she read this very piece I'm about to pick. <laughs> Uh-oh. And it was honestly, Randy, I want to cry. Watching someone else feel deeply connected to a piece that's not even the length. It's quite a short piece, but feel something to the point that they want to introduce that piece into the circle was the most exhilarating thing I could feel. And that was another indication as to why I felt it was important to publish my book. So this is the piece that was read by someone else unexpectedly into the circle. In order for light to blossom in the night, the darkness shall be the nourishing of sprouting. For without the dampened and dark soil, the roots visible in the light, will wither, hindering any light from growing. Oh, yeah, that's, that's uh, kind of deep. <laughs> Actually, no, it is pretty deep. What's it mean to you? For me, it was about seeing, uh, accepting the hardships that we go through as sort of a medicine and nourishment to grow from. Um, and as as icky as it is to be there, there's always a lesson to be learned there. There's always something insightful to gain there that makes you this courageous being to blossom and grow from. Um, so for me, it was a lot about showcasing that emotion and seeing it in a visual metaphor with nature, that is. You know, every time I see that little piece, it's quite small of a piece, but somehow every time I read that, I think, firstly, that came from me damn <laughs> pretty good uh and secondly um you know if i still continue to feel this way then perhaps someone else that reads it will feel the same way as well which will weave our our souls together in a sense and um and yeah so that's what it does for me you just uh reminded me of a, a quote that uh, my own quote that i uh, put in a few of my books and it basically goes something along the lines of this. I do not necessarily write because I have something to say, but rather because there may be something you need to hear. I love that. Use I love it. That. I don't, you know, I don't own it. I'm, I, I created it, but I share it. I go ahead. Whatever. That's, that's truly what I believe, though. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. And yeah. 
as sometimes as ridiculous as it may sound to me or, you know, whatever, or somebody's going to get something out of it. Absolutely. And if we don't share it, then we're, we're failing in our duty. Yeah. It's be servicing the whole of, of life. I feel and every person that's involved into this life that we live. I feel the whole point of artistry of any kind is to share it, to be able to connect to someone and feel that connection as we're meant to birth to be is we're meant to be connected individuals, species. And we live, we've been living in a society where there's lots of corruption and pain and trauma that can really truly cut, cut the bonds between each other. Mm, absolutely. Um, before we started, actually started this interview, I think I said, uh, nothing happens by chance. So maybe her reading that in that circle had a, had to have a reason, right? Yeah, absolutely. Uh, next question. Who do you write for? You know, I was just about to say, um, firstly, what I unleash as a message comes from the depths of myself needing to be brought to the forefront as a way to find a deep bond within myself. Rather, that's the higher, grander state of my being to, you know, um, the universe, God, whoever we want to identify the higher power. But also sometimes the consciousness of the younger me, inner work, talking to that little girl inside that still feels defeated at times. And, um, but in the process of doing that and then making my work more public, then it becomes an aim in writing and projecting the same way as it does for me to that other person. It's reaching towards the heart of another person to create that bond. Even if we're afar from each other, we don't know each other in a conscious level, but there is this level within ourselves that are deeply connected. And that's all that truly matters to me with writing. So kind of tying in back to the, the beautiful quote that you shared. It does tie in, doesn't it? But you know what? You chose these questions. <laughs> <laughs> Some uh, of it was meant to be absolutely the transition. Is poetry dying? Or do you think that there is still uh, enough interest in to keep writing it? Yeah, I personally don't feel so. I feel that any form of art, whether it's poetry, music, um, dance, whatever you may see art as, will never decay. I feel that it only changes and grows. The involvement of poetry will certainly branch out as I'm already witnessing to this day. And I truthfully, I view myself a part of it because I am of a younger generation. And now with the rising of pro prose poetry, I feel that uh, that's a new branch of art form within the poetry sector that may not be wholly um wholly accepted yet into the into the poetry community mm -hmm. but i do see it branching out and obviously because i'm of the millennial generation there's new forms of poetry that are coming out but i don't think in my perspective from what i can foresee in the future <laughs> in uh in myself i don't see poetry ever decaying i think that there will be new introductions of genres and styles and truthfully, older forms of art will always come back 
because we live in a regenerated, regenerated society. So things are always going to come back into style um, with any, you know, such as fashion. The 90s back in fashion, it's crazy. I like tried the mullet. Yeah, I tried to um, run away from the fashions of the 90s, and now I'm surrounded by the 90s in Tofino. So <laughs> <laughs> I feel that any form of poetry will come back at some point in the future if it seems like they're kind of um, fading out. However, I don't feel that poetry is dying whatsoever. Okay, okay that's fair enough. But yeah. the other side of that question, which... Uh, I'm glad you picked up on this side of it, but uh, the other side is if you go back to like the 1600s, uh, the Renaissance, and poetry was at its height in culture. You know what I mean? Everything poetry was was the thing to be doing, and as painting as well. But um, and then poetry started declining in popularity, and through the 60s it came back up again. You know, and I missed a whole bunch there, but the 60s was big on poetry. And and I think now we're in a lull to the point where um, it, it almost seemed like, you know, there were so many, I don't read poetry, I don't read poetry, poetry is not my thing or whatever. And yes, there is now a new resurgence coming, but it hasn't peaked yet, I don't think. Right. Yeah, I mean, I could see it rising. Um, I think um, just from the time that I've lived here on Earth, Poetry wasn't really, at the time of my early years, wasn't really an amusement as it is now compared to my my youth. I feel that poetry is now more of an amusement than it was when I was much younger. Um, so in that sense, I see it kind of rising back up. And that's why I say I don't see decaying. I just see it, you know, things uh, coming back into life here and there as a fluctuating stream. And I think it it may rise more from here on, even so, because we have so many great thinkers that are coming back to life. Mm. Thinkers that are very deeply philosophical. And I feel that the more their name is heard, which could be very easy to do in this day and time, because we have social media as a way to to flare that up. I feel that poetry will definitely rise back up. I don't, I've never read this person's poetry before, but in my generation, she's becoming quite a popular one. And that's um, Rupi. No, was it, her name's Rupi Kaur. Yes, Rupi Kaur. <laughs> I had to second guess myself. That's and, a good thing sometimes. Yes, yes. Um, yeah, Rupi Kaur. I haven't read her works yet. However, I see people posting her her pieces through social media and not only that she does poetry performances she's making a compact of the importance of poetry performances and i feel that that's kind of like the renaissance time where it was you would go there and someone would speak poetry in front of a crowd and that's kind of coming back into um into normality like normality right now uh, with her i feel as a canadian poet um an activist so i do see poetry rising back up in my community here there is a huge group of poets young and aged and 
we really feel that there's a great importance in sharing it. So there's spoken word is quite a popularity. So I feel from one town to another, it will slowly rise back up into introducing the amusement of poetry performance and just digging back deeply into translating someone else's perspective into the means of your own consciousness. But that's the West Coast. So it's if it's not Tofino, it's Bowen Island. It's Gabriola <laughs> Island. You, you know what I'm trying to say, right? That's okay. just the, the way the West Coast has gone. The West Coast of Canada has gone. Is is all the thinkers and free, uh, yeah, freedom. Uh, I don't even know what I'm trying to say, but those type of people, and I was one of them because I lived out there for many, many years. But that they seem to gravitate to the west coast of Canada or you know, Toronto. That's a really interesting thing that you just brought up. Thank you. Yes, actually, as we observe this, I do feel that there's certain hubs of society that definitely welcome it more than others. And it's dependent on how we live. I feel here in most parts of BC, that is, um, in, especially in the remote areas, they're very welcoming to slow-paced life, which welcomes an intensity of your thoughts, dwelling into your own thoughts and your emotions that can really ripple out into these beautiful art forms of art. Whereas in a city, it's a fast-paced lifestyle and, um, and, or even in a suburban area and all that's thought of is money. Um, all that's thought of is accomplishing to a certain entitlement in life, a position. For the, for, for that reason, it really desensitizes a person from being into the heart of their soul, which is art, artistry. That's where artistry is birthed from, is from our souls, I feel. So I, I can, und- I absolutely, from when you said that, I can definitely see that for sure, that that is a truth <laughs> for sure. Well, there you have it, folks. You've heard it right here. I'm smarter than I look, but dumber <laughs> than you think. <laughs> um, but with regards to the city thing, yeah, it, it's fast-paced. But you know what? They They don't want to waste their time on things that they perceive as being a waste of time such as creativity or or anything like that they're just they're, they're too focused on getting done what needs to be done and they don't have the time for anything else yeah. is that is that a fair assessment absolutely mm-hmm. all right <laughs> all right i'm feeling accomplished now <laughs> what are the benefits and challenges for that matter with self publishing a book of poetry when I chose my route of author subsidized publishing, it was for the favor of owning the rights of my work, along with full monetary reward of what sells of my poetry. Whereas it's yeah, pretty- starting to sound like a city folk there. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> but with normally from what I've heard from many people that have gone the traditional publishing route, they've lost their control over their own artistry. And suddenly the credit is going to the publishing agency. And I don't think that's fair for an artist, especially because art in itself, it's really hard to make it into the world as an artist to begin with. And I don't see there being a benefit from someone else owning the rights to my work and benefiting off of it when it's my vulnerability to begin with to share these pieces of my own that came from me and suddenly having someone else get credited for it. 
even through monetary gain. So I feel I chose author subsidizing. Another reason, well, another challenge that would be for going the self-publishing route would obviously be the marketing aspect. With a traditional publishing industry, obviously there's a greater capacity. Sorry. That's okay. Of visibility, right? There's more visibility when you're going through traditional publishing, whereas uh, with self-publishing, it's mainly on your own to make yourself be known in to whatever capacity you can reach. And so, for instance, with big retailer bookstores, they're not just going to automatically have your book in store, whereas traditional publishing is more accessible to do that. I have to do a great portion of work to get my book on the shelves of stores, which take a lot of time and effort. As those who are listening in that knows this complication, <laughs> we definitely feel that in depth themselves. <laughs> um, and so I, I would say those are the challenges and the benefits of either or. But I, the main aspect as to why I chose to go the self-publishing route was because I want to own the rights of my work. I don't want my work to be stolen off of my heart, off of my soul. And it was greatly important to have full control over it. I can understand that. I don't know if this happens as much in the poetry uh, world, but with uh, fiction and and other um, memoirs and whatever, you send it into the publisher and they, well, we want this change. We want that change. We want this. At what point does does that story stop being yours? Do you think that's a relevant statement with regards to poetry? Thanks for tuning in to this week's episode of Between the Lines. We hope you enjoyed our discussion and were inspired to either start writing or to keep on writing. If you have any comments, questions, or suggestions for future episodes or guests, you can reach out to us by sending an email to randy.btlpodcast at gmail.com use comment or suggestion in the subject line for a copy of the transcript of this or any other episode just send us an email using transcript as the subject line and indicate which season and episode you would like a transcript for Visit my website, therandylacy.ca, where you can purchase one of my books, read my blog, and yes, even hear every episode of this podcast. If you have enjoyed what you've heard and would like to hear more, click the Buy Me a Coffee button at the top right corner of the page to help cover the costs associated with keeping this show available to you. If you're ever feeling overwhelmed by the many lines in your life, take a deep breath and remember the wise words of Winnie the Pooh. Sometimes the smallest things take up the most room in your heart. Until next time, keep on keeping Between the Lines. You have been listening to part one of our interview with the incredibly talented Felicia Hurst. Before we wrap up, we have a very important announcement to make. 
Between the Lines will be taking the entire month of June off to prepare for the remainder of Season 3. We'll be back on July 5th with the conclusion of our interview with Felicia and even more amazing content. In the meantime, don't forget to subscribe to the show on whichever platform you listen to us on. By subscribing, you'll receive reminders and notifications of any new content we release, including surprise bonus episodes. We also want to take a moment to thank our listeners for their support. If you enjoy the show, please consider supporting us by buying us a coffee or two. Your support helps offset the cost of running the show and will even help us upgrade and replace some of our equipment so that we can continue to deliver a high-quality podcast. Thank you for tuning in, and we'll see you on July 5th for the rest of Season 3 of Between the Lines.